Hey everyone, welcome to the Being Patient Podcast. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. When my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, I decided to use my skills as a journalist in a different way. Frustrated by the lack of information on science and the inability to get different expert opinions, I decided to quit my job at the Wall Street Journal to create a better platform for people impacted by dementia. We are a community where news and information is created by our team of journalists. We ask tough questions and we simplify the science so that anyone can understand. We don't only cover disease, but delve into the latest research on what it takes to keep our brains healthy. We invite the experts and ask your questions. Here's today's podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Today, we're going to talk about uh, something that sounds like it's from a very futuristic um, book, but in fact, it's not. It's called Neuromodulation, and it is a way of stimulating the brain um, in order to today treat Alzheimer's disease. So joining us today, we have Dr. Anir Grossman. He is a scientist who specializes in this type of neuromodulation that is currently under trials. So thank you so much, uh, Nir, for joining us. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Okay, let's just, um, you know, when, when you think of um, brain stimulation, it really does sound like something out of a science fiction novel. Um, what does it mean exactly to stimulate our brains? Um, that's, of course, a great question. I, um, I think the way to think about it is to understand that behind our behavior and function, there are a lot of activities. There is like, if you open a computer, there's a lot of movement and signalings and moving around to facilitate the computation or operation. That's exactly the same thing in our brain. There are billions of cells that communicate with each other, sending signal to one each other. And when we talk about brain stimulation or neuromodulation, that means that we aim to uh, modulate or change the activity in the brain and in terms of a therapy we want to correct abnormal activity that often underpins the symptoms as well as the pathophysiology of the disease okay so i, I want to first talk a little bit about neuroplasticity and how this may relate because we know neuroplasticity is really sending in, in a very like kind of crude um, simple way of explaining things. Um, we're changing the patterns in which the neurons travel in our brain. If we learn something new, like a musical instrument or something, and we know that's good for our brains. Um, so is this a way kind of to adapt that type of plasticity in our brain, but instead use it for uh, a treatment? Excellent question. Neuroplasticity, we enter into neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity, let's just conceptualize that. Um, if you think about movement, channels, let's say, of cars in the street, 
and you can monitor where there are a lot of cars where there are traffic jams you want to increase the size of the roads to facilitate a more broad um, uh, traffic in the next days or weeks or years more in the future and that's essentially what new neuroplasticity means it means that the brain or the neurons in the brain sense where there's a lot of communication that seems to be activity that that signaling that might, something very important is happening there and that will further amplify or increase the bandwidth if you think of this activity now that assumes that the activity is good but this can also go exactly in the wrong way i.e plasticity can be used to maladaptation of the way the brain communicates so and that often leads to persistent change and leading to symptoms the symptoms can be facilitate manifested as tremor as a psychiatric disorders and as well as cognitive or memory disorders so one of what we were trying to do here is to correct first of all the activity itself and by repeating this uh, corrected activity we can tap into this plasticity property of the brain to cement, if you want, this uh, improved activity and uh, discard, um, overriding the abnormal activity or the, the pathological activity. Okay, and then um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between um, uh, invasive and non-invasive deep brain stimulation i mean uh, you know uh invasive is obviously implanting something into the brain and i'm not sure that's actually i i, I think it's being tried in certain ways but um i'm not sure it's been successful yet in treating and then non-invasive is really just is it like wearing a helmet or something to to modulate um brain stimulation from outside um and not inside Yes, yeah, so first of all, we need to understand that when we talk about the brain signals and communication, the signal and communication is electrical or electrochemical. That means, because of that, is sensitive to external electric field. So if we can uh, introduce electric fields at, at the target region, we can change the activity and with that also in correct maladapted activity or induce more physiological activity now the brain is a three-dimensional structure we have the cortex at the surface and we have a lot of deep structures and each one of them has unique uh, function in terms of cognition memory in terms of uh, movement and so on and if we try to, if we want to stimulate that with electric fields, we need to apply electric field. The electric field amplitude decays with the distance from the source, i.e. the electrodes. So if we would like to target a superficial structure, we can put electrodes on the scalp or on the skin and apply electric field, and that will do the job. It will stimulate, however, the neurons that close to it, which will be on the surface. And the deeper structure would not be affected because the one on the surface will be affected first. 
If you want to target, however, there is a there is a lot of benefit of targeting deep structures because a lot of the more complex um, computation or relaying system of the information in the brain sit deep inside. So until now, the way to do that, we had to insert electrodes into the brain, literally drilling a hole in the skull and putting electrodes inside. It sounds um, a little bit scientific, as you science fiction, as you as you said, but it's actually an FDA-approved therapy for several disorders, including severe motor disorders and severe psychiatric disorders. The challenge is because it involves brain surgery, it can only be relevant for those patients that nothing else helps in them. Yeah. Yeah. So in this scenario, if we can target those deep structures, that if we change the activity there, we know it will have benefit, but without the need the surgery, that will have enormous benefit, correct? And that's, um, this is what we develop. We develop a technology that allow us to do exactly that, to target deep structures without uh, uh, the need to ins uh, surgically insert electrode. This new technology called temporal interference brain stimulation. And um, that's essentially what we are using now to test its therapeutic benefits for people with Alzheimer's disease. Okay, tell us a little bit. I, I know that, that what you're testing is it's non-invasive. Um, what does it look like and what, what exactly, where is the study at? Um, what are you testing? Um, what do you hope to learn in your specific study? Um, so we... Um, I don't know if you want to share your slides here. Oh, <laughs> I'm happy to do that because that will help explaining the yeah, Before this talk, Nir um, was showing me his slides and I admittedly got scared that they were going to be like very sciencey but he has a he did a nice job um with simplifying them so i think they'll be helpful to our audience so let's first understand that will help us to get the concept of um, where brain stimulation fits in terms of a therapy in comparison to other more traditional therapeutic approach so um, of course one of the main symptoms of uh, dementia is memory loss and 70% of the causes of uh, dementia are due to Alzheimer's disease. Hence, many of us in the world investigating the genetics or the, if you want, the molecular underpinnings of Alzheimer's disease as the cause for dementia and how these changes affect the health of individual neuron cells. The neuron cells are the building blocks of our brain and computation. However, a single uh, neuron cells cannot carry complex comp uh, cognitive operation in isolation. And hence, it makes the, uh, the path from changes at the molecular level to actual benefits to patient very elusive or abstract. What we understand today, that the transition from Alzheimer's disease to dementia go through changes at the neural network level. Is this this change in communication between thousands of millions of cells that are responsible for um, the symptoms, i.e. the memory loss that we see in dementia. It also we know that the change at the neural network of those 
um, thousands and millions of cells affect the level of activity of individual cells and has many genetics, genetic processes that depends on activity. So if typically, um, if typically we try to intervene by developing drugs that affect the genetic and molecular underpinning of the disease, we use brain stimulation or what you could say neuromodulation to intervene with the abnormal neural network activity. Okay. So when we think about brain stimulation, as you mentioned, there are two types of brain stimulation. One of them is deep brain stimulation. So we insert electrode deep into the brain to target small structure in a very focal way. And this, as you see, it's involved brain surgery. This is a therapy that help thousands of people around the world, but because of the need to surgery is very limited. On the other hand, we have a non-invasive brain stimulation that target the superficial structure of the brain in a very dispersed way. Yeah? So until now, it was impossible to target deep structure in an invasive, uh, uh, in a non-invasive non way. And this is exactly what we did. We addressed these long-standing technological gaps by developing a new type of brain stimulation called temporal interference brain stimulation. In temporal interference brain stimulation, we apply two currents to the brain, or showing we are, um, or apply one current to the brain, we are one pair of electrodes shown here in blue, at the frequency that is very fast, so the neurons cannot follow it. Yeah, let's say one kilohertz or 1,000 hertz. In the same time, we apply another current to the brain via another pair of electrons shown here at black. At the kilohertz frequency is slightly different from the first one. So if we apply 1000 hertz, we'll, the other one could be 1010 hertz. These two currents create electric field inside the brain shown here in blue and black arrows. Um, and the neurons inside the brain superimpose those electric fields. And if we look on them, on those electric fields in the time domain, the oscillate and phase, the combined field has an, shown here in red, has an amplitude that change periodically at a different frequency, at the bit frequency. And what we discovered is the neurons can respond to that. And because, and there, this bit frequency, the overlap can be targeted to deep structure inside. So in the past, obviously, when we reported the technology, we demonstrated that in animals. We show that we can target a deep structure called the hippocampus. It's critical for memory. We, we measure that by using immunohistochemistry, lighting up everything that we stimulate. And you can see we stimulated the deep structure. This is the hippocampus, essentially, without the overlying layer. Yeah? There's no change. There's no lightening of cells in the overlying layer. This year, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, please. I, I just want to... I, I just want to clarify something, which I'm I'm not completely clear on. Um, when you are, are you targeting, I mean, we know the presumed pathology of the disease is plaque, uh, beta amyloid plaque, tau tangles, inflammation. Um, when we're talking about this in the context of Alzheimer's dementia, uh, what stage would neuromodulation be applied? Is this a, a strategy for prevention of the disease or to slow down the disease, um, when would someone use this treatment? It's an excellent question. 
And I think the way to think about it is to understand the, the interactions that exist between the neural network activity, the symptoms, and the pathology, okay? So these are all interconnected. What is the one that caused? We know that there is accumulate, accumulation of toxin aggregates such as amyloid beta flux and, and taus, and they are affecting the health of the cells, but that themselves do not cause the memory loss, okay? And there are various, the amount of aggregates that we have there and the neuroinflammation processes that they are the drivers of the pathology is sensitive to the activity of the cells. So if we are, if we can change the activity of the cells, yeah, by brain stimulation, we can potentially slow down or even prevent or reverse those aggregates that uh, risk the health and causing the neurodegeneration. In so the same, would, yeah. would a healthy person with high risk for Alzheimer's, let's say a homozygous E4, um, ApoE4, would this be a treatment applied to someone who has a genetic um, a predisposition um, to try to prevent the disease um, from progressing through like plaque formation and you know further on, or would could you possibly use stimulation to in fact, if you already have plaque in your brain, break down the plaques and um, slow down the course of the disease? I mean, this needs to be uh, tested and validated. It's only speculation at the moment. What we know that the network level of activity sits in between, okay? So imagine even as somebody that has plaques developed, but it doesn't affect at all its cognitive performance, which we know that's the case because patients can live with brain full with plaques without a single symptoms. It starts to affect the everyday life when there is a disruption of the network activity and so on. So it could be that we just prevent the developing of symptoms associated with mild cognitive impairment and dementia for those that are developing the plaques. And that means this, this, this mechanism of action. Yeah. So but we study, also know, you, yeah. Sorry. So your study is in a very early phase, right? You're, I think you're in phase one, right? And so are you trying to figure out if the device works or what, what stage are you at? And what does it look like to have that? Is it, is, is it something you wear on your head or how do you stimulate non-invasively with your specific study? Um, right, so there are two different questions. I will just briefly show that we, sh we target the human hippocampus using a memory uh, as a test. And I, I just skimmed through that. And importantly, what we showed that we non can non-invasively reduce the effort that the hippocampus, which is a deep structure that is critical for memory and learning, and that is the starting point or location of Alzheimer's disease, that we can reduce the overall activity in the hippocampus and the efforts required to perform memory operation. And we can also improve memory when we did it in healthy subjects, healthy human uh, uh, people. And this is an example of how the hippocampus look like in Alzheimer's disease eventually disappears. And we, um, so with that in mind, we now finished this year the first clinical study in Alzheimer's patients. 
we wanted to test the safety. It's the first time we go from a single dose, i.e. a single session of stimulation, to 10 days of stimulation. We wanted to establish that that is safe. The reason we need to go for such a for longer stimulation session is partially what you are saying about neuroplasticity, because we need to repeat those stimulation or augmented real pattern, good pattern of activity in the brain, so the neural network can do that itself uh, without us stimulating. And we are starting the next study, the second study, it's also phase one in Alzheimer's patients this year, with the aim to optimize the way we do the therapy and look for a dose-dependent memory improvement in those patients. This is where we are. So the fact that we show that there is memory improvement, that means there is an early stage evidence that we can uh, affect the symptoms, the key symptoms of the disease. The fact that I showed you that we reduced hippocampal activity allude to the fact that we may able to affect the underlying pathology. And indeed, in parallel to that, I'm not showing it here, we run, uh, we do preclinical studies in animal model of the disease, where we show, or what we see, is that is actually there is, um, there is reduction of the plaques when we do the stimulation and essentially we can affect those drivers of the disease. Yeah. So still really early days, um, but in, in the context of what you're talking about, um, why not just use this as a health tool? Like all of us just do it if it, if it stimulates the brain and maybe that leads to prevention rather than, I mean, obviously we're looking for treatments and non-invasive would be wonderful, but could this be something that becomes part of a future health routine to get your brain stimulated in order to prevent things from going wrong down the road? Um, talk to me a little bit about the prevention aspect of this. Well, well you ask why, why not? I mean, I'm here to prove why yes, <laughs> and that's hard. And to, to prove why yes in terms of prevention is even harder. In just the terms of the magnitude and length of the study wants to, we, this is what we do. We, we do a proper rigorous scientific investigation to understand both the therapeutic mechanism of action and to validate that it can actually benefit patients. And also via this process, optimize the way we do that and understand which patient subgroup it can help them and if not. And that's, that's by itself is an enormous undertake. And of course, once we do that, there is, uh, uh, there could be, they could pr uh, create rationale for healthy subjects, healthy people, elderly people that uh, have risk of developing uh, mild cognitive impairments and Alzheimer uh, to use that. But that's, um, that to prove that will need to be proven or people take it uh, on their own i think in terms of safety the safety profile of that would potentially enable that we do envision that that therapy will be done by the patients themselves at home and that's in fact one of the important insights that we got from uh, focus group that we have in that includes uh, patient with Alzheimer's disease, carers, healthcare provider, and they clearly say to us that the only way these things will be adopted 
is when it will be operationalized at home. And this is what yeah. we are geared to do. Absolutely. What are some of the risks um, that, I mean, I know it's still early days here, but are there any risks um, in applying this type of, of therapy? Any therapy, any intervention has a level of risk. I think until now we, we deployed this procedure of hundreds of people and now dozens of patients also with Alzheimer's disease. It's all well tolerated. They most of the time do not feel anything. The typical, the typical uh, sensation that exists during the stimulation or during transcranial or non-invasive electrical stimulation is, is when one stimulates the skin on the way to the brain. And then one can feel tingling. And if the stimulation is very strong, one can feel even burning sensation, although there's no burning. And just because we stimulate the somatosensory uh, neurons there. Um, that does not exist so much in this stimulation because it occurs underneath the skin. Uh, there is, uh, if one uh, caused a very, very strong stimulation on the brain, because we are synchronizing brain activity, there is a, 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 an hypothetical risk of seizure induction, but this requires orders of magnitude, 100 times to 1,000 times stronger stimulation than what we are doing. Right. We're getting some questions um, coming from our audience um, that I wanted to ask you. Um, so we're, um, sorry, I'm just, do you envision um, the external stimulation as being maintenance in that a patient might need to, to continuously use it in an ongoing fashion? Uh, and how how long is it like 10 days per year or would it be used only when symptoms develop? Um, and also another part of this separate to that is, um, do you see um, artificial intelligence perhaps as a, a tool to adjust and understand how, you, how much you will need in, uh, in terms of this type of intervention? These are excellent, excellent questions that we ask ourselves. I, I don't have the answer, but they are exactly the questions that we are asking. So exactly the first, I mean, but we can make some, we can help the, pay, the, the audience to conceptualize what would but give an example for existing therapies. So there is an existing uh, FDA approved therapy for depression that is based on electromagnetic stimulation of the cortex. It's called transcranial stimulation, FDA approved. The therapy involved six weeks, five days a week, one hour a day stimulation. That by the end of that, the patients, most of the patients benefit from them, and then they need, after a couple of years, some maintenance stimulation. So here's one example. The second example on those patients with severe uh, motor disorders that uh, receive this deep brain stimulation that we discussed before. And there, if you, the moment you stop the stimulation, after a second, the symptoms return. So you have to stimulate all the time. I hope that uh, leveraging on the neuroplasticity, we can correct the activity in the brain and with that, create a sustained benefit to the patients. Okay, um, someone else is asking, have you done any work with people with a history of traumatic brain injury? 
Um, and people, in fact, with both a history of uh, TBI and uh, APOE4 status. No, we didn't. And Is that, I, I wanted to emphasize to the audience that I, I, I we, we are very uh, susceptible for uh, the unbelievable suffering and needs that patients have especially because we engage with patients and their families all the time. And um, we're trying to develop a therapy to a disease that for the last decades we fail as a society, as a science, as a medicine. It's very hard. Yes, there are new involvement, there are new improvement now coming out with the FDA-approved uh, drug. And I think we'll see more and more of them. And it could be uh, most likely they will be they may work in synergetic way even there is a drug that uh, clear amyloid beta plaques in the brain how that is actually converted into improved memory is not clear but this is exactly where neuromodulation can fit in because we are correcting the circuit that's related to the function so i just wanted to that's one that's one thing the second thing to say that because we're trying to prove scientifically, uh, robustly, that there is a benefit here, we need somehow, with limited resources, by definition, it's not just money, it's also time, um, we need to be able to select a subset of patients and first of all demonstrating on that. And that's the reason why we don't test many, many things in parallel. Right. Understood. And I mean, you kind of answered this, but um, people are eager to try. Uh, you have some people in our audience who say anything in the U.S. Um, that's being tried. I know that you're not the only um, scientist who is testing out neuromodulation. There's certainly a number of different studies going on. Um, but, you know, uh, I think you're quite a far away from state phase three, which would be the efficacy of, of the treatment. Right. So, um, just give us a general, is it is it a couple years away? What do you think in terms of is, should phase one, phase two go well? So I will say two things. First of all, in the technology, by the way, there are many people doing neuromodulation, but there are much less one that can target different structures, non-invasive. The technology, the temporary interference stimulation technology, was developed when I was in MIT and Harvard in Boston, actually. And there are groups around the world, including the U.S., that using that. We, to, we together with groups as well in Boston, uh, spearhead the development toward therapy for Alzheimer's disease, while we support other groups around the world to develop a therapy for other uh, brain disorders. In terms of the timeline, that means what I want to say by that, that there are uh, mechanisms for patients in the U.S to engage in the during the clinical development stage and not waiting for the IFD approval under a clinical studies, of course, with a question of efficacy. Um, and we actually also very much encourage input from patients. We, I, I always uh, um, benefit enormously from discussion from patients to understand their, their expectation, the concerns, and so on, and uh, I'm encouraging 
patients and carers to contact me and I'll be very happy to facilitate discussions and so on. In terms of the timeline, I, I know what are the next steps that we need to do. Uh, the timeline of them, of course, there is always a huge uncertainty what will be the outcome of those studies. The next immediate step for us is to conduct the study that will run in the next two years, where we will want to demonstrate and test the uh, dose-dependent benefits. That will give us, that will teach us a lot about the therapy. We are going to use also to measure the brain activity during the stimulation and use machine learning, AI, as you mentioned, to identify those markers or biomarkers in the brain activities that will allow us to predict in the future which patient would benefit from that. That is what we need to do in the next two years. In parallel to that, we need to develop the capability to do everything not in my lab or the clinic, but to do it at home. At that point, if that's successful, we'll be ready to uh, deploy pivotal studies that will test the benefit. We're going to phase two and immediately to phase three, essentially. And then, um, Nir, just to clarify, because this was also raised by um, somebody, is this is different from the light therapy that we've reco we've covered a lot, right? Where you have um, gamma mm -hmm. gamma waves of light. Uh, that so this is a different type of stimulation, and it's penetrating much deeper in the brain um, in the hippocampus. Uh, well, well, let's think about it. The light therapy is not the direct stimulation of the neurons in the brain. It's essentially giving us sensory input. Either all, I mean, they actually combine of light and audio. It's a sensory input to the brain that has some periodicity into that, that then is, uh, affect, of course, those regions in the brain that are designed and uh, uh, geared for this sensory input. The ability of affecting other regions in the brain is very indirect. Yeah. So if we want to affect, for example, the hippocampus, where everything starts in Alzheimer's, there, there is no direct. The hippocampus is not a sensory organ. Another organ is site for light or for audio input. So there could be some indirect signaling that eventually will go to the hippocampus, there, but they are very much muted. In fact, our brain is very good, as we all know, to attenuate any constant input so we can look for the changes. So I think there is, uh, there's no doubt there is benefit in terms of sensory input by, the, by far for people, elderly people, to prevent new degeneration, any sensory input, as well as social input and interactions. It could be that a particular frequency periodicity of this sensory input is also very beneficial and that's exactly the therapy that you alluded um, and uh, what we do is is a, a different in a sense that we go straight to the region in the brain that is affected by the disease and change the activity directly and not via sensor input right okay well we've certainly taken a lot of time on this topic it's really fascinating um, thank you so much for sharing and taking the time to explain this to us. It's definitely an area, obviously, everybody wants to keep an eye on, um, especially to think of a non-invasive treatment um, for Alzheimer's would be uh, incredible. A whole whole new world out there, you know. Um, so thank you so much, Nair, for sharing um, your time and your thoughts and educating us on neuromodulation. And 
If people want to know more about your research, we will post the link. I think Katie has in this in the chat section. Um, but thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And thank you for inviting me. And if you missed any of this interview, don't forget to go to beingpatient.com. Sign up for our newsletter. Uh, that's where you find out about talks like these. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And we will see you next time. Happy holidays. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on upcoming interviews, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at beingpatient.com. That's B-E-I-N-G-P-A-T-I-E-N-T.com. And send us any feedback you may have, whether it's someone you want us to interview or any comment about our podcast series. You can do so by emailing info at beingpatient.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Deborah Kahn.